All right, I want you all to take your service folders. I want you to open up to the top of page 12 uh, under the heading that says the Apostles' Creed. Everyone there? Or close anyway? All right, now I want you to go down to the second paragraph or what is known as the second article of the Apostles' Creed, an article all about the Son of God. And I want you to go four lines down to the line that starts, He Ascended. Everybody know where I am? Good on that? All right, we're going to read the last two sentences together. Ready? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Those words that we just spoke are all about, or are the truth about what it is that we are here today celebrating, the ascension of our Lord. Now, if I were to go around to each one of you and ask you, what is the ascension of our Lord, and what does that mean for our day-to-day -day lives? How many of you think you could confidently give me an answer of what it means, uh, what it is, and what it means? Yeah, I don't see any heads shaking. Yes, I can do that. That's, that's kind of what I thought, because the, for many in, and it's not a bad thing. That's why we're here today. Today, I'm going to tell you what the ascension means for you. But for many in Christendom, the ascension of our Lord is enigmatic. It's kind of this odd thing that's hard to understand. So if you, if you, go, if you zoom out to 10,000 feet and take a look at Christ's ministry from above, there are really these four big, I suppose what you could call mountains in Jesus' ministry. You've got his baptism, which is the public inauguration of Jesus' ministry. You've got the transfiguration. Remember, six months before he goes into Jerusalem, Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up the mountain and gives them a glimpse of who he really is. They get to have the veil pulled back and see his glory. The third mountain would be his death and resurrection, the culmination of all of his work as our Savior, uh, paying for all of our sin and winning for us a life that never ends. And then the fourth one, the fourth one is the ascension. And I think you could probably give a confident answer to what those first, the purpose of those first three are. His baptism, transfiguration, death and resurrection. At the very least, I would hope you could tell me confidently what his death and resurrection means. Um, but the fourth one, the fourth one is enigmatic. And herein lies the issue. If you don't grasp what the ascension is and what the ascension means for us, you either are robbed of all of the comfort that the ascension provides to you, or you live your Christian life in this world as a follower of Jesus without without even thinking about the ascension at all. In both of those things, you, with both of those things, you end up in the same place. If either of those are the way that you think, you end up, well, you end up doing what the disciples did on the day that Jesus ascended. You end up looking intently up to the sky, kind of puzzled. Now, it makes sense why the disciples were standing and looking up at the sky, kind of puzzled, especially when you consider everything that the disciples had gone through over the last 40 days. So 40 days prior to the ascension, the disciples hear rumors from their women and from some of their own brothers of an empty tomb and a risen Jesus. 40 days before the ascension, Jesus appears through the locked doors of that upper room to assuage all of the disciples' guilt and to offer them peace and to give them proof that he has really risen from the dead. And then seven days later, he shows up and says to the doubter named Thomas, hey, put your fingers here. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Over the course of those 40 days prior to his ascension, Jesus showed up 
to a multitude of people and taught his disciples about what was coming next. What is the next big thing in your life and in my life as Christians and as your Savior? So finally, after all of that turmoil of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, the, these men, they finally have Jesus back and they're thinking, now, now that all of Jesus' work is done as our Savior and sin is paid for and death is defeated, eternal life is ours, now that Jesus is going to do what we've always wanted him to do, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Unfortunately, the disciples kind of had a little bit of misplaced zeal uh, for what they wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus has to set them straight. He says that as far as the, the, the days and times for when all of the, the world is going to come to an end, the culmination of all things, that's not for you to know. That's, for my, that's my father's business. Instead, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus, he doesn't answer their question, but instead he teaches them and gives them promise and gives them a new task to do. He basically is telling them, boys, don't worry about the future. Set your hearts and your minds on the task that's at hand, at the task in front of you. You are to be my witnesses to all of the world. You are to take everything that I have taught you, everything that you have seen, everything that I have made known to you from my Father, and you are to take it and to tell other people. You are to take the message of sins forgiven and heaven opened, not just to Jews, but you are to take them to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, every time I read through Acts chapter 1, I've, I've got to think that this is what is going through their minds. That that is an incredibly tall order for Jesus to give to 11 men. But, Jesus, if you're with us, if you stay here to correct us and to teach us and to train us and make sure that we're on the right path, then I'm sure that we can do it. But they don't get their wish, do they? Because as soon as Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, what happens? He ascends, right. He disappears from their sight in a cloud of glory, and the disciples are standing there, looking intently up to the sky and wondering, what comes next? Wondering, where in all of the world is Jesus? Now, as Christians, there are moments, and maybe even long seasons of our lives, where we do that same exact thing. Where we stand there intently looking up to the sky and wondering, where is Jesus? Now, as Christians, our entire lives can be summarized with this one sentence. That our lives are lived in between the reality of the now and the not yet. Now those words that we just spoke from the beginning of the or from the middle of the Apostles' Creed, they describe that truth. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Specifically in that last sentence, we anxiously look up to the sky and we wait for Jesus to come. Right? We want that to happen, for Jesus to come back and to take us home to be with him. But that's the not yet. So what about the now? What about in our day-to-day -day lives? Where is Jesus now? Well, we talk about that in, the, uh, in that Apostles' Creed too. We say that Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's a truth that's very comfortable and easy to profess when our lives are going well, both our spiritual lives and our physical lives. But because we are sinner saints, 
because we are people who live with sinners, because our lives are ones that exist in a world out there that is broken and sinful, we know that life doesn't always go as we plan it. We know that life isn't always all rose petals and unicorns. And when your life falls apart, be it big or small, those are the moments when we act like the disciples. We stare intently into the sky and ask, where is Jesus? I had one of those moments last Sunday. Last Sunday, I got a phone call from my mom, which is not an unusual thing for a Sunday. She likes to hear how how stuff at HLC is going and asks about many of you by name because she's gotten to meet a handful of you. And, um, and I think most of the time now she calls me to find out how her future grandbaby is doing. Um, not even to talk to me really. Um, but this, none of that was the nature of this phone call from my mom. Uh, you see my goddaughter Tess, she had been sick for the last few days. She had a fever and chills and uh, headache. They went and got her tested for COVID, but it, the test came back negative. Well, as the days progressed, her headache got worse and worse until finally they took her into the hospital because nothing was working. And that's when they found it. They found a tumor on her cerebellum. Um, and they think it's likely cancer. I just, I lost it. I mean, Tessa's 15 years old. Just sophomore in high school has barely begun to experience life, and now she might have cancer. Like Martha said to Jesus when her brother had died, Lord, that's what I said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, things would be different. I looked intently up to the sky, and I, I just said, Jesus, where are you now? I don't know what those moments are that cause you to look intently up to the sky and ask those questions. But I know that you've got them. Maybe it's when you look out at the, the degradation of our world and the evil that seems to abound and you say, Jesus, where are you? If you'd be here, if you'd stuck around, things would be different. This past week, a bunch of the COVID restrictions were lifted mask mandate was taken away in North Carolina and and now it seems like we're on the precipice of what is the new normal whatever that happens to look like and yet over the as of Friday the, over the last seven days 592 people still died and then you look at India the mess that's going on in India and how COVID is ravaging that country and as of Friday just on Friday alone 4,000 people had died you look at all of the suffering and the sickness and the death, and you intently look up to the sky and say, Jesus, where are you now? Or maybe for you, it's just something much more personal. Maybe you're weighed down by the guilt of all of your sin, and you can't possibly see a way out of it. And you look intently up to the sky and say, Jesus, I need you, but you don't seem to be anywhere to be found. Maybe you're having a crisis of faith. You're in a new season of life and everything that you've ever believed to be true, everything that you've ever known and clung to, well, now you start to question it. Maybe because a new season in life has brought along new challenges or a mentor that you've always looked up to to lead you in what it means to lead a Christian life has walked away from the faith and from the church and, 
and you're wondering if maybe you should be doing the same thing, so you look intently up to the sky and ask, Jesus, where in all the world are you? I don't know. I don't know what those moments are for you. But I know that you've got them. Those moments when we intently look up to the sky and ask that question. And do you know the reason why we ask that question? It's because we misunderstand the ascension. We intently look up to the sky and ask that question because simply we don't get what the ascension is. Plain and simple. But we need to stop. We need to stop looking up to the sky and asking those questions as if the answer to that question can be found up there. That's not where the answer is found. It's not up in the sky. The answer to that is found in the place where I point you every single week. It's found in his word. The answer to that question, where is Jesus, is actually found in the very thing that you and I are here celebrating today, in his ascension. Because when you ask that question, where is Jesus, his ascension gives you the answer. He himself gives you the answer. Because right before the ascension, he promised this. Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. He answers that question for you. I am right here with you. But how can that be? How can that promise stand true when every single week we confess, like we just read, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Well, the right hand of God, it is not a location. The right hand of God is not a place that I can point to up in the sky and say, there's the right hand of God. It's not a place I can locate on the map and says, there's the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a position. It's a position of power and prominence and authority. And when Jesus, in his glorious and resurrected body, ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God. And he's doing something specific. The Apostle Paul described it like this in our second reading. He says, he who descended is the very one who also ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Earlier in the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul also talks about it like this. This is something that we had, had read together as part of that opening dialogue. It says this, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When it comes to Jesus' ascension, there is a tendency for us as Christians to think that the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven, they washed his hands. That he went up into heaven and kicked his feet back because all of his salvific work as our Savior, as the one who bought us back from our sin, is done. And now he's going to watch us and try to let us figure it out and, and think through and then intently look up into the sky when we fail and say, where is Jesus? Unfortunately, that is one of the most common, commonly taught and commonly taught things about the ascension and one of the biggest misunderstandings because that could not be further from what the ascension actually is. The ascension is simply Jesus, the removal, the removal of Jesus' visible presence from our eyes. That's it. He removes his visible presence from us. And I want you to understand why that is such an incredible blessing. And to understand that, go back with me to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, He who descended is also the one who ascended, in order that he might fill all things, that he might fill the universe. 
when Jesus descended to take on flesh and blood to be your Savior, he is or was true God and true man in one person, meaning that everything that belonged to God also belonged to him because he is true God. But when he descended into this world, he took on the humble nature of a servant, and he laid aside use of all of that divine power that he had at his disposal, which means he was located in one place at one time. But the ascension changes all of that. Because now, after he ascended, he fills the whole universe. Now, because he ascended, seated at the right hand of God, he can make you that promise. That at all times and in every way, he is with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you, your ascended Lord says to you. He's with you in those moments when you are weighed down by the guilt of your sin and can't seem to find a way out. He says, my friend, I'm with you. You don't need to ask where I am because I'm right there. And I want you to know that I have not left you alone because day and night I stand before my Father interceding for you. And I would have you remember this, that my blood covers over your sin, your guilt is forgotten, and that heaven is yours. The ascension makes you the promise that he is with you always. When you're trying to make sense of of the evil and the degradation of our world, and you look up to the sky and say, "Where, Jesus, where are you? Because I'm right here. I'm right here next to you. And though it seems like Satan and all of this evil is winning, they aren't. My death and resurrection prove it. And I even have Satan on a leash and know that there will come a day, there will come a day when when they'll be gone forever, and I'm going to make everything new. But until that day, also understand that as your ascended Lord, I work even through the worst things that happen in this world, the worst atrocities that happen in your life for your good. I'm with you always. In the middle of your crisis of faith, when, when you're struggling with doubts, when you're not quite sure which way is up spiritually anymore, your Savior He comes to you and says, you no longer have to ask that question, where am I? Because I'm right here with you. He said, I want you to continue to trust in me and to lean on me and my word because I am the way and the truth and the life and my word is truth and it gives you life. Continue to rely on me and on my word because it is my word that gives you the promise that you never have to doubt where I am. I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is Jesus' promise in the ascension to you. It's a promise that I needed to be reminded of throughout this past week. I was kind of wrecked earlier this week when I got that news about my goddaughter. I was angry. I was sad. You feel all of these different emotions when you get news like that. But over the last few days, my aunt was able to schedule a uh, a, an appointment with a neurosurgeon and an oncologist, and they gave them different news, different from what they had originally heard. And it doesn't seem like this, that this tumor is cancerous. Now, she's not out of the woods yet. They're going to monitor, monitor her very closely for growth in this tumor over the coming months and years. They're going to put her through a battery of tests to make sure that it, it is, in fact, not cancerous. But she's doing better. And truthfully, I'm doing better. 
And it turns out that God was using this as an opportunity to remind me of the truth of what the ascension means for me. Because I didn't get that news until Friday, right as I'm writing this sermon. It's as if God was saying to me through this, this text in Acts chapter 1, you see, Doug, I never left. Though you can't visibly see me, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I'm with Tess, and I will be to the very end of the age. I'm with your family, and I will be to the very end of the age, no matter what happens, no matter how badly things get, no matter what diagnosis comes as a result of this. I am with you always. It's incredible the way that God works, isn't it? As the disciples were intently looking up to the sky, two angels appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you intently stare up to the sky? This same Jesus that was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that he went up to heaven. I said earlier that, that you and I need to stop looking up to the sky. But I need to clarify that a little bit. We need to stop looking up, at the, up to the sky and asking those questions that are born out of misunderstanding the ascension. Because now you know. Now you know what the ascension is and what the ascension means for you in your day-to-day life. So now when you look up to the sky, look up there in faith, trusting that Jesus is with you every step of the way and will continue to be with you. This is the promise of the ascension. Also look up there, trusting that Jesus, that same Jesus who went up, he will come back for you. This is also the promise of the ascension. He will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead. On Christ's ascension, we build the hope of our own ascension. It's this hope that always stills all doubt and apprehension. For where the head is, there as well we know his members are to dwell. When Christ our ascended Lord returns to call us. Come quickly, Lord. Amen.